Thank you, Serena. Good morning, church family. We're so thankful, uh, just the uniqueness of the season and the uh, um, opportunity that we have to be all together and looking forward to uh, spending some time in God's Word today. We are in the longest sermon series in history, okay? Um, we have been going uh, summer by summer, uh, psalm, uh, one psalm at a time through the book of Psalms. So we started in Psalm 1 like 50 years ago, and uh, now we're at Psalm uh, 56. And if you plan on sticking with us here at Hope Church uh, when, when little uh, Isabel uh, is doing her own child dedication for her own baby, uh, then we'll probably uh, be done this, uh, this sermon series. Um, one of the most successful uh, movie series of all time uh, is Toy Story. Uh, Toy Story 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, just in like this unstoppable, beautiful story about the innocence of a childhood and toys and what toys mean to us and, and what family means um, and what, what it means to, to, to be a friend, to sacrifice, to love. I mean, many of us grew up uh, watching a Toy Story and then enjoyed the same movies with our own kids or our little nieces and nephews. It seemed like this Toy Story series could could not go wrong. It just can't lose. But right now, it's losing. Uh, there's a new Buzz Lightyear movie. There's a whole demographic of people who feel alienated uh, by the movie because of some of its content. There's entire countries that are not showing the movie at all because of the way that it, it depicts uh, relationships, the way that it depicts marriage and love and childbearing and all of these things. Not, not that these subjects cannot be addressed, but that they're being addressed for a movie targeted at, at children. And the star of one of the movies, trying to bring some clarity into what's, go, what, what's happening and why the movie is not as popular and, and what is going on, ha, had this to say. This is the wisdom that, that he chose to bring. These are Chris Evans' words on the subject. The real truth is those people are idiots. There's always going to be people who are afraid and are unaware and trying to hold on to what was before, but those people die off like dinosaurs. The truth is those people are idiots. I'm those people. I'm those people. No one came to the defense of those people when Chris Evans said these things. There was no outrage that he alienated like a huge demographic, not only in North America, but all around the world. Not just Christians, but religious people all around the world. There was no upcry. There was no questioning. There was like, no, maybe you shouldn't say it like that. No, those people are idiots, and they're all going to die off like dinosaurs. This is the world in which we live. And I quoted one entertainer, one influential person in one particular aspect of society, but I could have quoted politicians, I could have quoted scientists, I could have quoted academics, I could have quoted educators. And I, I gotta ask you that as you hear these sorts of things in our world, as we look at the things that some of our non-Christian friends have posted about pro-life people, 
in the last couple of weeks because of a decision that was made down in the, as, as we look at the hostility towards anyone who holds a Christian point of view, I gotta ask you, do you ever get a little worried? Are you ever a little bit afraid? Are you worried that you're just, you know, next June you're going to get called into the HR department at your business? Are you afraid that, that you're going to have to have a meeting with your principal or with your employer because you don't toe the line on this particular issue or on that particular issue? Are you worried about those friends who are posting those things about you? They're talking about those people, but you're those people. Are you ever worried about where all of this is heading? Your, your friendships? Your family? Are you, are you ever concerned about the kind of world Isabel's going to grow up in, that our, our children are going to grow up in? Are you ever afraid? Psalm, Psalm 56 speaks right to that. The, the, the chorus of the psalm gets repeated in verse 4. And in verse 10 and 11, it says, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In verse 11, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The title for today's message is this, What can man do to me? Chris Evans can say whatever he wants. Our political leaders, even our prime minister, can say whatever he wants. They can throw us in jail. They can take away our rights. They can even kill us. So be it. What can man do to me? That's what Psalm 56 is about. Psalm 56 is more, listen, this, this psalm has not been relevant for Christians living in North America for a long time. It's very, very relevant now. And the trajectory at which things are going, it's going to be more and more relevant. So let's, let's dive in, leaning forward, looking to hear from the Lord this morning as we learn to trust in God's promises and how that transforms fear into confidence. When we trust in God's promises, it transforms fear to confidence. We begin with the all capitals notes at the top of the psalm. This is part of the inspired text. It says to the choir master, that's to the, uh, to the worship leader, who was to put this to music. He has a suggestion. This is the melody that they're supposed to use according to the dove of far-off terebinths. Apparently, that was a, a well-known song, and uh, David is saying, take that melody. You know, different songs can have the same melody. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, Baba black sheep, and the alphabet. It's all the same melody. And, and so David's just saying, here's a song. This is, the, this is the popular song. You know that song about the doves and the far-off terebinths? We don't know that song, but the choir master knew that song. And that was the tune that they were supposed to sing. He says that it's a mictum. Uh, a mictum, uh, we, we don't know the Hebrew translation of that word, but there's an Akkadian word, which, and uh, the Akkadian language and the Hebrew language are close. And the Akkadian word mictum, or the word that sounds like mictum, is the word for covering. Now Psalm 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60 are all called mictums. And they all describe times in David's life where he was running and hiding from Saul. Mictum means covering. A mictum is a psalm where David is living undercover, where he's, where he's hiding. He's got the Jason Bourne uh, ball cap on, and he's going through the streets with his collar up, and he's trying to evade, he's trying to cover. This is a, this is a mictum. 
And we're in, this summer, we're in the mictum section of the book of Psalms. It's a mictum of David. And it says this, he wrote this when the Philistines seized him in Gath. When the Philistines seized him in Gath. You see, Saul had been chasing David around. Saul was the father of David's best friend. He was the father of David's wife. And he was the king. He was the most powerful person in David's society. David had uh, tried to reason with Saul. He had tried to reason with Saul's son. Saul's son had tried to reason with Saul. Saul had been throwing spears at him. Saul went over to uh, David's house, and David's wife had to, you know, take a page out of Ferris Bueller's book, and he put, she put a mannequin in the bed to, to make it seem like David was lying in there sick. Eventually, David just started running off, and things got so bad So bad in his own country, he decided that he would be safer if he went to Philistia, where where the Philistines live. But David, for his whole military career, had been winning battles against the Philistines. And then it says also that he went to Gath. Gath is the hometown of Goliath. And so David thought, well, you know what? They're not going to be, like, everyone is looking for me in Israel, So if I just move to this other country, no one's going to be looking for him. But he gets gets caught. He gets caught. So uh, I I just want to show for you on the screen here the context. 1 Timothy chapter, or sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21, it says, So David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Notice, David's not the king, but even the enemies recognized who the real king was. Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid. David was afraid. He was afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he, this is crazy, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So David says, oh, you think I'm David? Yes, I am David. It's sort of like the people, you know, the, who say, I'm Napoleon or I'm this person, I'm that. So he's like, yeah, I'm just a crazy person who's claiming to be David. He thought maybe that will work. So he made marks on the door of the gate. He let his spittle run down his beard. He started drooling in public. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad, and this is one of my favorite lines in the Bible. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? I love that question. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my, in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then David escaped the whole, you know, that classic, you know, act like you're crazy trick. But it worked. It worked. So the psalm here in Psalm 56, because there's this chorus in verse 4 and verse 10 and 11, the choruses kind of divide the psalm into three sections. And so we're just going to look at this psalm section by section. The, the, The first one is, is this, David describes a hopeless crisis. He's experiencing a hopeless crisis. There's a, there's a colloquialism or a, a, an idiom, a saying that we use in, in English, out of the frying pan 
into the fire, right? That's based off a, a, a fable by an Italian philosopher from the 1500s. But th this idea that you're out of the frying pan, you're out of one hard situation, but you jumped out of the frying pan and landed right in the fire. It just goes from bad, bad to worse. So David's like, where do I go? I'm an enemy in my hometown, and I thought I could escape into enemy territory, and now things have gotten even worse. It seems hopeless. So he cries out to God. Verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. Verse 2, my enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. He mentions twice he's getting trampled on all day long long. He asked God to be gracious to him. He says that his enemies in verse 2 are many. Many attack me proudly. Saul was his enemy. All of Saul's advisors were an enemy of him as well. Now he's got the Philistines and Achish and all of Achish's advisors. He's got many enemies and it says that they attack him proudly. They attack him proudly. Now uh, translators who are translating the Bible from Hebrew into English don't really know what to do with this phrase. They attack me proudly is, is accurate because the, the word that's translated proudly means to be up high. But I think what David is talking about and what he's getting at here is not just that the people are arrogant, but the people who are attacking him are in positions of authority. Like there's no higher authority than Saul, and there's no higher authority than, than Achish, king of the Philistines. And what we're finding is that the people who are in the places of authority, whether it be entertainment, or whether it be politics, or whether it be education, or whether it be sports, whatever it may be, is the people who are in authority, who are making the decisions and have the influence, are being in increasingly anti-Christian. Have you noticed that? And so not only is there arrogance that David is concerned about, but he's concerned about the fact that I have no power. I have no agency. There's no way for, for me to get out of this with, within the realm of, of human society because everyone who possesses all of the power is against me. And sometimes that's how we feel as Christians. But remember, if God is for us, if we trust in God... We can, even though people treat us like enemies, we can love them like neighbors. So David's in this hopeless crisis. And then he says in verse 3, when I am afraid. Notice it's not if I am afraid. It's not I'm never afraid. In the story in 1 Samuel 21, it said that David was much afraid. It says when I am afraid. It's okay, it's normal for us to look at the world around us and to think, wow, there is like this mounting tidal wave of sort of anti-Christian sentiment in our world. And that can be a fearful thing when we think about raising children, when we think about, about doing business, when we think about going to school. But when we are afraid, what are we supposed to do? I put my trust in you. That's the key. It's not wrong to be afraid. But we should, when we feel those fears, when we feel those concerns and those worries, and that's normal, but what do we do with it? Do we try to fight? Do we try to flee? Do we try to run away? 
No, we just got to simply put our trust in God. He says, I trust in you. He says in verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In God whose word I praise. He praises God's word. That, that could also be translated, I boast in God's word. This was the source of David's confidence that God had made some promises to him. Remember the story where Samuel came over to David's house and uh, all of David's brothers were there and one by one they all got rejected as the future king of Israel and then David got anointed as king. He's very young at that point. And David knew he had a promise from God that he was going to be the king and that allowed him to live sort of in the fearless way. Because he knew that Saul could chase him all around. He could throw as many spears as he wanted. But he knew that God had promised that he would be king. He knew that he was going to survive. He knew, yeah, Achish is powerful. And he's in enemy, enemy territory now. But he knew, no, God made me a promise. So I'm going to be confident. Christians need to live this way as well. We need to trust in God's word. Trust in his promises when things get Rough. This is what we should do. He says, in God I trust. And then he says, what can flesh do to me? What can flesh do to me in verse 4? They could do a lot of things. <laughs> right? Those Philistine soldiers, those Philistine prison guards. I mean, Achish could have said the word and they could have done a lot of things to David. What, what could happen in our culture? A lot of things could happen to us. But that doesn't mean that we flee. It doesn't mean that we run away from culture. It doesn't mean that we, we go off and, 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 and hide from the world. It also doesn't mean that we have to fight with everyone and prove to them on Facebook. Again, I'm still waiting for the baptism testimony of someone to, tell, to come here at church and be like, I didn't believe in God and I was, I was uh, in favor of these different you know, uh, political issues and then someone fought with me on Facebook and now I'm a Christian. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. Haven't seen it. The answer is not to run away. The answer is not to fight. The answer is to trust in the Lord. What can flesh do? They can do a lot. A lot. Can, listen, loved ones, like the way things are heading, I'm not trying to scare people. or worry. I'm just trying to be realistic. It's not looking good for us, like in, in terms of what it means to be a Christian in our society. The outlook is not looking good. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to recognize, yeah, a lot could happen to us. Jobs could be taken away. We could miss out on scholarships. We could miss out on opportunities. We, we, we could be narrow. We could be uh, marginalized. All of these things can happen. All of those things are still within the sovereign control of our God in whom we trust. What can flesh do to me? They can, they can do a lot but they can't do anything that's outside of God's perfect plan. So he describes this hopeless crisis and then he sings this chorus where he's kind of pumping himself up. Yes, I am afraid, but I'm gonna trust in the Lord. Yeah, what can flesh do to me? He describes this hopeless crisis and then secondly, he describes God's meticulous compassion. He describes a meticulous compassion. Verse 5, he says, all day they injure my cause. There's a footnote there. That another way of saying that is they twist my words. 
So Achish's advisors there were twisting things that David had said. Saul's advisors were thinking, hey, man, David is just a rung on the ladder to my success. So as long as I can step on David, remember he says he's getting trampled on. They're they're trampling on him because they, they want to be elevated in their role in the kingdom. So he says, all day long they injure my cause, they twist my words. So often Christians' words are twisted or a a, a simple statement of truth is described as fearful, as some sort of a phobia or as bigotry or as hatred or as ignorant. We we so often hear that the the, the Christian view is just dismissed as, as hateful or as fearful or as ignorant. They just... Our our perspective is so often just twisted and dismissed. That's what David was experiencing. It says, they stir up strife strife in verse 6. They lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. They're spying on him. He feels like he can't go anywhere without someone kind of watching him, trying to to figure out what he's going to say, how he's going to slip up next. Verse 7, for their crime will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. David says, God, don't let them get away with this. I'm not going to fight for myself. I'm not going to flee. But God, would you step in and bring justice? And then in one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, I love verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This is the meticulous compassion of God. You've kept count of my tossings. That might be like tossing back and forth in the, you know, the sleepless night when you're stressed out. Again, the ESV helpfully puts a footnote in her Bibles to say that also means wanderings. David had been wandering all over the place. He wasn't safe in the palace, so he had to run away from that. He was living in a cave for a little while. That wasn't safe. He would go to these different cities, and they would betray him and turn their backs on him. He would wander there. Now he's wandered over to Philistia. He's wandering here. He's wandering there. And God is, God is the original step counter. Right? Everyone's got these things on their watches, and they're like, oh, you know, the 10,000 steps, or, or 12,000, I can't, you know? And, and so often, aren't you often surprised with, with, with how many steps you've taken? Sometimes you feel like you've taken a lot, it's only been a little. Sometimes you felt like I hardly did anything, and you're like, wow, like this must be broken, or something like that. Other times, I see people, I won't name uh, any names, but I see them like sitting there moving their arms while they're sitting because they're in some sort of step-counting competition. I think last year at Hope Kids Camp, there was a pretty intense step-count competition among the leaders. It's, we're often surprised, aren't we, about where we've been or how many steps we've taken. God is the original step-counter. He keeps count of our wanderings, of our steps, every step that we take. He counts. And then I, I love this. He, you put my tears in a bottle. I, I don't want I, I to pick on Captain America. Like, I don't know Chris Evans. You might be surprised. We're not friends. So I'm not, like, personally bothered that he thinks I'm an idiot. But 
I know for just about all of us, we've shed some tears because some people have said some things to us about our faith. And there have been some relationships that have been broken because not, and maybe we didn't handle things as, as well as we probably should have, but at the end of the day, what tore the relationship apart is your faith in Jesus. And you've shed tears over that. And that's a, that's a real thing. And in our, so God stores our tears in a, in a, in a bottle. Like we, we have a bottle problem in the world, right? Like plastic bottles, they're all over the ocean, they're everywhere. Uh, nations are trying to outlaw, we have too many bottles, right? In our culture, we think a bottle, okay, yeah, everyone has a bottle. No, you only had maybe one, maybe two bottles in your whole house in, in Hebrew culture. And a bottle is only used to store something that is precious. Milk, honey, oil, perfume. The most, the most precious things go in bottles. So when a Christian cries, when a son or a daughter of the living God cries, that is precious to the Lord. He puts them in a bottle. They are like the most valuable things to him. I, I, love the, I learned this old song at Camp Minioe, come to the water, stand by my side. I know you are thirsty, you won't be denied. I felt every teardrop in the darkness you cried, and I long to remind you that for those tears I died. They are precious. He meticulously counts our steps. He meticulously stores our tears in a bottle. They are precious to him because, loved ones, we are precious to him. As Apostle Paul says, the world might think we're the scum of the earth. So be it. What can man do to me? But I am precious to God in Christ. Meticulous compassion. And I love what he says in verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. We sang that this morning. This I know. My enemies will turn back. This I know. We will see the enemy run. This we know. We will see the victory come. We hold on. What do we hold on to? To every promise that you've ever made. We, we cling to the promises of God. We boast. We praise his word. We trust in him. I love that simple statement in verse 9. God is for me. The apostle Paul picked up on that in Romans 8, didn't he? When he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 38 is just a summary of Psalm 56. What can flesh do to me? Who can be against us? God is for me. God is for us. 
He stores our tears in a bottle. Revelation 21 says one day he'll wipe them all away. Then he repeats the chorus. In God whose word I praise, in verse 10, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? When we're afraid, we trust in God. And that trust transforms fear to confidence. Jesus told us about this, about not, not, not to be afraid of the, the influential people in this world. And I was reading my devotions this week in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. So the question to Psalm 56, what can man do to me? One of the things they can do to you is kill you. Like, and that's a, that's a real, everyday reality for many Christians living around the world. They, they read Psalm 56, and they say, what can, what can man do to me? And on their list, at the top of their mind is, well, they could come and arrest me and kill me, or a mob could come and take me away from my family and put me to death. That's, a, that's, a, that's an everyday reality for many Christians as it has been throughout the centuries. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He says, don't fear man, fear God. And then look what he says. Then he brings out the meticulous compassion. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. God, God knows all about sparrows. Not, not, not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. Are you, you are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus reminds us, this is the meticulous compassion. Don't fear, but even if they could kill you, still don't be afraid. Trust in him, because there's a life beyond this life, and there's a death beyond this death. And ultimately, what matters is not what the world thinks about you, but what God thinks about you. And this is what God thinks about you. You are precious to him. The hairs on your head are numbered. Your steps are numbered. Your tears are stored in a bottle. So fear not. I love what Solomon, or the, the wisdom in the book of uh, Proverbs, I'm not sure if this one was uh, of Solomon or not, but Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, says the fear of man lays a snare. We get trapped. We don't know what to do. We're paralyzed with the fear of man. And so many of us struggle with the fear of man, not just with, with non-Christians in the world or those in positions of power in society, but we struggle with fear of man in our family, in our workplace, here at church, even with our spouse, where we're so afraid to let someone down or, or to be thought of in a negative light. The, the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. But it says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So David finds himself in this hopeless crisis, and then he reminds himself of God's meticulous compassion, and that causes him to conclude with a fearless confidence. A fearless confidence. 
He says in verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. He has a fearless confidence. He's, he's already planning on and looking forward to the day where he's going to be back and able to go to the tabernacle. He says, I'm, I'm going to perform vows. I'll render thank offerings to you. David still, at this point, he's making his way back from Philistia into uh, the southern region of Judah. He's three or four days journey from the tabernacle, and he's not going to be welcome there. Because everyone's searching for him. They're lurking around. They're on surveillance, trying to find him. But David knows, God made me a promise. I know I'm going to get there. I, I know that I'm going to be there back at the tabernacle worshiping. And here's why he says in verse 13, for you have delivered my soul from death. You see, David knew, <laughs> he knew at the end of the day that the reason why he escaped the king of the Philistines was not because the drooling was really convincing. You see, we, we serve a God who can open the eyes of the blind and who can also close the eyes of the seeing sometimes. David knew that it wasn't his ability to put on this performance of a, of a mentally unstable, crazy person that got him set free. He knew that it was God who had delivered him. And why did God deliver him? At the end of verse 13, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David was a man who trusted in God's word and who praised God's Word. David was a man who says here he wants to walk before God. A man who walked before God. The incredible thing is that as the story goes on, you, the, the Bible in, in many ways is a story of men who walked before God or women who walked before God. But as the story unfolds, the story changes it changes from being about a story of a, a, a bunch of men and women who walked before God. The story changes to being God who walked before men and women. And this particular man is called the Word. And in Psalm 56, it says, in God's word, I praise. In the promises of God, I hope, I trust. And then a man comes who is the word of God, we're told in John chapter 1. And look at that phrase at the end of Psalm 56, verse 13, the light of life. Does that sound familiar? The light of life. That same man, the man who was God, who walked before men and women, the word of God, this is what he said. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, there it is, the light of life. You ever notice that if you're scared, if you throw darkness in there, the, the fear factor goes up like quite significantly, right? Things, are, things can be frightening with the lights on, but if you add to that frightening moment darkness, the, the uncertainty that comes with darkness, fear gets 
multiplied in those moments. Jesus says, listen, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, won't walk in fear, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 56. Look back at verse 5. David had his words twisted as people were always watching him and trying to trap what he said. Jesus, the son of David, always had his words twisted. People were always watching him and trying to see how he would respond, try to trap him in his words. In verse 13, yeah, David was delivered from death. It seemed like he was certainly going to die at the hands. He was there. He was going to be executed before the king at the king's wishes. And David was delivered from death. Jesus was there before Pilate and before Herod. And he did die, but then was ultimately delivered from death so that we could experience what it means to walk in the light of life. You see, here's the beauty of what Jesus did for us and what's what's recorded in Psalm 56 is that same God of meticulous compassion who counts all of our steps and stores our tears and numbers the hairs on our, he's always counting. Our God, because of Jesus, has decided not to count one thing. He counts our steps, he stores our tears, he counts the hairs on our heads, but he does not count our sins against us. Because that man who was the light of life, that man who who came as God and walked before men, went to the cross, suffered and died, and all of my sin, and all of Ebenezer and Adrian and Jem's sin, and all of Ray and Irene's sin, all of Terry and Janice's sin, all of Ezra's sin, all of Lindsay's sin, was counted to Christ so that the God who counts everything would not count our sin against us so that we can be set free from darkness and walk in the light of life. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to trust you. We want to acknowledge that there are many reasons in our world to be afraid. But we pray, Lord God, that that fear would not cause us to fight or to flee, but to trust. And that you would give us confidence to live how you want us to live, to live a life of love, to live a life of compassion, to live a life of grace, to live a life of truth before this world is becoming increasingly hostile to your ways. And God, I pray right now in Jesus' name, those of us who are fearful, who are anxious, who are struggling, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us that courage and that confidence to live the way that you want us to live. Lord, I thank you that you have not counted our sins against us. So God, I pray that we would rejoice and delight in the gospel, rejoice and delight in all that you are, and in all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.